her this morning. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood.
him to change your desires this morning, to desire what he desires. Let your heart break for what breaks his. You be like him, to give him glory. Come on, a whole life. Come on, surrender. Oh, Jesus. quickly. Church, this morning it is my great uh, honor to be able to tell you that, in case you didn't notice, the tank is on the stage this morning. And also it looks like we have a balcony full of kiddos, and that is awesome too. And the reason why is because I'm sure that that they know the uh, the young men that are going to go public this morning. And so it's exciting to have you guys with us here too. Thank you for being here. Church, uh, we're gonna hear some stories from three brothers this morning from the Harris family. We love the Harrises. Uh, we got dad in the back there, Brad, on lights every single Sunday, faithful. Mom, April, is up here. And uh, that kind of rhymed and I didn't mean to do that. Um, but we're so grateful for the Harris family and their, uh, their three sons are gonna go, pu- go public this morning and they're declaring to the world and to you as their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ that they're trusting in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And it's a beautiful thing. So let's check out their stories and be encouraged and, uh, and encourage them, celebrate with them this morning. Let's check it out. I was listening to a Bible story with my mom and brother Mason. And he asked Jesus into his heart that night. The next night, I couldn't stop thinking about having my own relationship with Jesus. I realized I was a sinner and I need him to save me. So I walked downstairs to talk with my mom and dad when they prayed with me. I remember going back upstairs feeling so happy. I want to make good decisions for Jesus. I don't always do right, but now I know he forgives me when I mess up. My favorite Bible story was when Jesus rose from the dead because it was a miracle and it was amazing. Last year, my granddad went to heaven. He was a pastor and I looked up to him so much. It was really hard. God helped me remember in just a little while, I'll see him in heaven again. 
I want to be baptized today because I believe in Jesus and you can too. I'm Maddox Harris and I'm going public. So good, good morning, my name is Brad Harris and I am the proud father of these three young men. I want to thank all of those standing with us today, our family, our friends. And I especially want to pause and thank all those who have poured into my children. Miss Tricia Leggett, Mr. Chuck Taylor from Kid City, Parker, who's going to preach this morning, Charles Smith, Sean Edwards, and youth. I really appreciate what you guys have poured into my children. Boys, you've seen and experienced such loss over the last year. Miss Tricia, Miss Dottie Green, Mr. David Spain, who spent so much time teaching you guys in kids' church. You've lost two great grandmothers and you lost your granddad. <clears throat> but what we know through such loss is that God is always in control. He is always faithful, even when we don't understand his plan, which is what makes me all the more proud today that each of you had taken the stand to publicly profess your faith when others would turn from God. It's a powerful lesson to learn and example to follow when we look at those that we've lost and how they were obedient and they impacted your lives for eternity. I know that your granddad, who was a pastor, would be incredibly proud of you today, just as your papa, who's also a pastor and standing here today is as well. So in honor of your granddad, and of your decision today, I'm gonna to baptize you guys just like he would have if he were standing here today using his handkerchiefs to do it, okay? So Maddox, not only are you getting baptized, but it's your birthday today, right? <laughs> Maddox, you're our determined spirit, especially when you set your mind to do something. We're also so proud of you and leading your brothers in this decision today to go public. Colossians 3, 1 and 2 says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above. Set your mind on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. So Maddox, in obedience to God's holy command, and upon a profession of your faith, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, buried with him in baptism under death, raised to walk in new life. sitting on my bed reading a Bible story with my mom and my younger brother. I realized how much I messed up and I couldn't get it off my mind. I know that Jesus died on the cross for my sin and I saw that I needed my own relationship with him. I went to my mom and told her I wanted to ask Jesus into my heart. We talked for a while and prayed together. 
My relationship with Jesus grew more over the past year as my family walked through a really hard time. Knowing that I have a relationship with Jesus and knowing I'll be with my granddad again in heaven helps me so much. I love Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he'll make your path straight. I want to get baptized today to tell everyone that I believe in Jesus and I want to live my life for him. I'm Mason Harris and I'm going public. So Mason, our rule follower, with such a sense of justice and of right and wrong. Jeremiah 9:24 says, but let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. In Micah 6, 8, it says, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So Mason, in obedience to God's holy command and on the profession of your faith, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, buried with him by baptism unto death, raised to walk in newness of life. I decided to follow Jesus when I was six years old. My parents had taught me how much he loves me and how he died on the cross for me. I was trying to go to sleep, but I could not stop thinking about Jesus. I felt like there was a hand on my shoulder and instantly knew I wanted to ask him into my heart. After talking to my parents, I remember feeling so free. My relationship with Jesus has grown, but especially over this past year. It was really hard for me to be separated from my friends during quarantine, and my granddad passed away from cancer. Looking back, I see ways God walked with me through that time. I learned I could be real with him about my feelings, but the main thing that comforted me was knowing I'll see my granddad again in heaven. Jeremiah 29:11 says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. This verse reminds me God has plans for my life. They may not always be easy, but I know I could put my hopes and plans in his hands for the future. I'm excited to say I belong to Jesus and that he will always walk with me through my life. I'm Matthew Harris, and I'm going public. Matthew is our peacemaker, just like his mother. In Matthew 5, 9, it says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. 1 Timothy 6, 12 says, Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you have been called when you made your confession in the presence of many witnesses. So Matthew, in obedience to God's holy command and upon the profession of your faith, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, buried with him by baptism unto death, raised to walk in newness of life.
Nothing can stand against the power of our God. You shine in the shadows. You win every battle. Nothing can stand against the power of our God. Almighty force, you go great to see you this morning. Um, yeah, I have no words to add to that other than who's next? Like who wants to come up here and we'll just take over the rest of the message and keep baptizing folks and all that. It'd be great. Uh, man, praise the Lord for that. I'm just going to pray and uh, thank the Lord for his work here this morning already and ask him to continue to move. So um, if you'll bow your heads with me before we get started, I'd love to uh, pray for us. Lord, man, we just praise you. Um, all glory to God this morning. Um, God, I know Brad and April would echo that same prayer. Um, God, that we can labor and we can work and we can invest, we can scatter the seed, um, but it is you that brings the growth. It is you that changes hearts. It is you that awakens the dead. Um, so God, we ask um, that that would continue over these next few minutes. God, not because I'm special or worthy, um, God, that is far from the truth, uh, but because you are. So God, as we talk about righteousness this morning, um, God, your word says that your eyes run to and fro. Um, in Isaiah, it says that righteousness had left the land. There was no one righteous, and you sent heaven's best for us. And God, the great exchange is you took on our sin. 
and you gave us your perfect righteousness, and then you died. Um, so God, we are grateful, and we are undeserving. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, well, uh, if you're new here this morning, or if you're a guest, if you're in town, if you're here um, because you are friends and family of the Harrises, or if you just heard about us and you decided to show up this morning, we're really glad you're here. Uh, you are catching us in the third week of our Battle Ready series, and we're walking through the armor of God in Ephesians 6. We're walking through the different pieces of the armor. Um, so if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and flip over to Ephesians 6, and uh, we'll be there for just a few minutes, and then we will flip over to Romans. So that's kind of where we'll be this morning. If you want to go ahead and find them both, you can, and just put a placeholder in one of them. Um, those are the two main places that we'll be um, and then I've got uh, a, lot other, a lot of other scripture this morning, but if you're there, you'll be fine. Uh, we don't apologize for preaching the word and giving you lots of Bible verses, and we hope that you uh, expect that. Um, the last thing I want you to do is leave here and to think uh, or try to remember, oh yeah, the preacher said this or the preacher said that. Um, the goal of a preacher is to show you something in the word so that you can see it for yourself. Uh, you are not meant to depend on me or another pastor. Uh, we want to help instruct you so that you can go and you can see these things for yourself uh, because they are glorious and they are good and they are right and they are pure. And we'll look at all of those um, things this morning. So Ephesians chapter 6. And uh, last week, Pastor Will walked us through the belt of truth. And uh, it was incredible. That message is online. I am going to um, pick up right where he left off, and we are going to be talking about the breastplate of righteousness. But in way of review, um, the book of Ephesians is an incredible letter. There's uh, six chapters in Ephesians. This is actually the end of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and the book is split right in half. The first three chapters, one through three, are all about the gospel. If you start reading Ephesians, you need to know this. The, the first three chapters are all about what Jesus Christ has done. In fact, um, there's lots of verbs in Ephesians 1 through 3, but there's only one command, and it's the word remember. It's remember what he's done for you. Remember what Jesus Christ has done on your behalf. This is who we are in him. This is um, this new people that he's making, the church, the ecclesia. This is what he has done through his death, burial, and resurrection on the cross. And then he turns the page in chapter 4, and Paul starts instructing us, hey, in light of what Jesus Christ has done, here's how we live in response. And that's usually how most of the New Testament letters are set up. It's never work for God to do something for you. It's here's what God has done freely. Now here's how we respond. And we're actually getting to like the climax of the command, the charge in chapters 4 through 6 when he talks about this armor. And Paul lets us know um, that we are in the middle of a battle. Uh, that even before God created the earth, um, he has been at war with Satan. And if you are in Christ, if you have been adopted into the family of God, you're made in his image, you're now his children, uh, you are going to be attacked too. If you are working towards, as Will said last week, the, um, if you are proclaiming the word of God and you are doing the work of God, taking the gospel to the nations, um, Satan wants to oppose the word of God and the work of God. And if you have believed in Jesus if you've been adopted into the family of God, you are going to be attacked. And we need to know this, um, that you have an enemy that comes to devour you. And those aren't my words. 
Those are God's words. This is in 1 Peter 5, verse 8. It says this. It says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That he is after you. Um, 2 Timothy, Paul's last letter says this in uh, chapter 2, verse 26. It says, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Sometimes he will come to devour you. Sometimes he will just come to deceive you to do exactly what he wants you to do, to help advance his agenda. And one of the things that constantly astonishes me as we think about just spiritual warfare and all these things is um, I believe this, and I know it to be true in the word, is God has the power um, to literally speak and throw Satan into the lake of fire forever, right? He has the power. He's not lacking in power. He's not lacking in the ability to do that. Um, but for some reason, God's plan in this day and age that we live in is that you and I would be the means by which he would take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And right now, he hasn't. One day he will. We know this to be true in scripture. One day he will return and he will condemn Satan to the lake of fire forever. But right now, he is not. And I'm not going to speculate and act like I know all the reasons why. Isaiah uh, 55, verse 9 says, His ways are higher than mine. Um, as the heavens are higher than the earth. His ways are higher than our ways. Um, but one of the reasons has to be because God is patient and kind to us. That right now, we are living in the patience of God. And he has given us a mandate to take the gospel to our uh, neighborhoods, to our coworkers, to our friends and family. And right now, he is tarrying so that we can continue to proclaim the gospel to the people around us. That has to be one of the reasons. But we know a day will come when he brings the end. And here's one of the things that bothers me a little bit. And trust me, this is not going to be a pet peeve kind of thing. Um, but we need to know um, who's really in charge. Because so many of us, we've either been taught this or we act like um, Satan is sovereign. And I don't know if you grew up in a church that taught this, that acted like basically how God kind of follows Satan around and Satan gets to do whatever he wants and God just has to come behind him and react and fix things and clean up the mess like an ambulance driver. Um, that is not the way the scriptures present this relationship. In fact, in Job, Satan has to approach God and ask God if he can tempt Job. And then we read in the New Testament scriptures that talk about how if you're in Christ, the Father holds you in his hand and nothing, no one can snatch you out of his hand, including Satan. So an accurate view of this relationship, of this battle, this warfare, is that God has all the authority. And in your life, one of them will be sovereign. God will or Satan will. But this idea that Satan can just do whatever he wants and God um, isn't really in control. He's just got to react and keep changing his own plan because of what Satan is up to is not true. That the plans of our God cannot be thwarted. Whatever he wills will happen. Whatever he decrees will happen. And Satan is on a leash. And we know how the story ends. We know it. He has been defeated at the cross. And when Jesus Christ returns for his bride, for his church, he will be defeated forever. He's on a leash. But the battle is real. And last week we talked about the belt of truth. And the assumption that I'm operating under this morning is that um, we all agree, as Pastor Will showed us last week, that this word is truth. 
The belt is the kind of convergence point where all of the armor comes together. It's the central point where all the other pieces converge. So the truth is where we are going to get our information this morning, is that the breastplate, all the different other pieces, they converge right here at the truth, at the belt. So that's the assumption as we walk through this this morning. And before we actually look at um, Ephesians 6 and just make a few observations, um, just scan it if you're looking at it real quick. Just scan it in your Bible. Um, There's so many different pieces of the armor, and some of them you put on, some of them you take up, some of them you strap on. Um, There's a lot of detail here. And I tell you that to say this. Um, that you will not accidentally resist the temptation of the enemy. You won't go through your day and accidentally, wow, I didn't even mean to, but I totally resisted the devil. You don't stumble into resisting the enemy and standing firm in your faith. This is an intentional thing. This is an active thing. All of the detail in here has to communicate just from the get-go without even beginning to read it, um, that you're not going to accidentally do this, that this is an active thing as we'll look at. And one of the things that Satan wants to do is devour devour you, um, especially if you are on the offensive and you're taking the gospel to your co-workers and to your family and to all those different places around you and the spheres that uh, the Lord has called you. But I would venture to say that if you're not, um, one of the things Satan might do instead of just um, devour you is make you content. Make you content with not worshiping. Make you content with your sin. Make you content with just basically being roommates with your spouse. Making you content with those habits. And if he's got you there, trust me, he'll probably leave you alone. Because you don't even know you're being devoured. And that's exactly what he wants. And we'll look at um, just how crafty he is as we look at this. So look at verse 10, Ephesians 6 verse 10. It says this, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his mind. And as Will talked about this last week, don't miss the prepositions. Be strong where? In the Lord. That Paul is not asking the church in Ephesus to muster up willpower and accomplish this. That we have to rely on a strength that is not of our own. It is in the Lord, and it's actually in the strength of his strength. Do you see that? In the strength of his might. This is where we get our strength. And then he says this, put on the whole armor don't miss the prepositional phrase, of God. He's not asking us to put on our own armor. He's not asking you to manufacture your own armor, to manufacture your own righteousness or your own faith or any of those things. So don't miss those first two details. We fight with his strength and we fight with his armor, which I think is glorious to think about, that we fight with the strength that he supplies and we fight with God's very own armor. And all throughout the Old Testament, you see the God of the universe put on armor, put on righteousness, and put on as a metaphor. He is completely righteous. He is completely holy. He is completely just. Um, But the writers use these metaphors to talk about when God exercises a certain aspect of um, who he is, of his attributes, of his character. But check this out. Um, Put on the whole armor of God, this is verse 11, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of of the devil. And that word schemes in the Greek is methodias. And it's actually where we get the word method from. And what Paul is writing here is to say that, hey, Satan has lots of methods to get at you. Lots of them. 
And whenever you get into a new season of life, you're never going to be exempt from his methods. If you get into a new season or a new place in life, there's going to be new methods. That he is crafty, he's cunning, and he will try to devour you. He has always, he always has a new method for your new situation. You will never get to an age or a spiritual maturity level in your life where you're just exempt from temptation. You never will. It will be there on your deathbed. There are new methods for new seasons and new pride, new arrogance, new circumstances, new schemes from the enemy. He is cunning and he is crafty. And what's so crazy about this is he preys on our desires, doesn't he? Uh, James actually talks about this in James 1, uh, 14 and 15. He says, but each one of us is tempted and led astray when we're, um, when we're lured and enticed by our own desires, right? He preys on our desires to be powerful, to be significant, to be in control. All of those things which we already have in the gospel, by the way. But he takes those desires to be joyful, to be happy, to be content, and takes something of this world and lures it, dangles it in front of us and says, hey, this will make you feel that way. And it might for a moment, but it always leads to more emptiness, more hurt, more baggage, right? He takes these earthly, worldly things. Jeremiah chapter 2 would call these broken cisterns. The irony of Jeremiah 2 is Jeremiah saying, we've turned from the fountain of living water, and we're looking for life, and we dig ourselves these broken cisterns that can't even hold water. They're leaking. And we run from the fountain of life looking for life, and we end up empty. And James would say each one of us sins when we're lured away and enticed by our own desires. He is so crafty, this enemy, that he will prey on your desire for love and for acceptance and to be content and to feel significant and to be secure and to be in control. All of those things which we already have in the gospel. And he will get you to forget about those and take your eyes off those and go try to find them in this world. And you will put something that never meant, never was intended to be a God in the place of God, and it will hurt it, and it will hurt you. And he's very good at this. He's got some schemes. Um, Oswald Chambers says this. He says, all sin is taking a legitimate desire to an illegitimate place. And it's so true. Taking a legitimate desire that you have to an illegitimate place. Trying to get an object or a person to fulfill this desire that you have, that only God can fill. It hurts them, and it hurts you. Every single time. But here's one more thing I want you to see um, before we jump over to Romans. It says this. Um, look at how many times the word stand shows up in this passage. Look at how many times the word stand is there. Uh, I'm going to start reading 11 through 14. It says this. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on and on and on and on and on he goes. So do you see what the purpose and the goal of this passage is? is that you and I would stand. And that word stand is actually the Greek word istemi. And you can remember it because it has the word stay in it. But the, it means to stand up against, to resist, 
to stand firm, to hold your ground. And why in the world would that be Paul's goal for us? So many of us, when we, it, it's ironic for us in America because we don't put on armor to just stand, right? We don't think we would just put on armor to stand. But here's why this is so important for us. Because the battle is already won. You don't have to go and win it again. Jesus Christ has won the war. And now he has given us his armor, and our job as his children is to stand firm. He's already won the battle. And now we put on his armor, and the enemy is going to keep attacking us as we are advancing, as we're sharing the gospel, as we're living out our faith to the community around us. But our job is to stand firm, to resist his schemes, to persevere to the end, to remain faithful under trial and under temptation. But to stand, you don't have to go and slay the devil tomorrow. Jesus Christ has done that. You rest in that and you stand firm with what he's called us to do. That's the expectation in this passage, is that you and I would be found faithful as we remember his word and study it and meditate on it and our affections for Jesus Christ increase, that we would stand. And what I love about this is it kind of progresses. Um, he repeats it a few times, and um, this word stand is actually the same word uh, that James uses in James 4, verse 7, when he says this, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, withstand the devil, istay me, and he will flee from you. Withstand him, resist him, and he'll flee. First Peter uses, or Peter uses this in First Peter, he says this, be sober-minded, be watchful, your adversary, the devil, we already read this verse once, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, verse 9, resist him, withstand him, stand against him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And look at how Paul uses this. The first time he just says, um, you've got these purpose statements. Put on the armor. Why? So you can stand. Take up the armor. Why? So you can stand. And then he says, having done all this, having put on the armor to stand, the fourth time he actually uses it, though, in the imperative. And the imperative tense in the Greek means it's a command. So put it on so you can stand. Take it up so you can stand. And have now that you've done all that to stand, stand. That's what he's saying. And this is what we're called to do in the morning when we wake up, that we would remember the different pieces of the armor, that our salvation is secure, that we know what truth is and we can decipher the lies, that we are righteous in Christ, that we have the gospel and we're at peace with God and we just stand. The enemy is going to come at us and we resist him. We're faithful. We know our shepherd. He says, I know my sheep and they know the sound of my voice, that we listen to his voice, not the voices of the world, and we resist. We stand because our Savior has won the war. And we do all that we can to take it up. We put it on. We do all we can to stand, and then we just stand. We resist. We withstand him. And then he says this, so how do you stand? Well, you look at the participles in the next passage or in the rest of the verses, verse 14 and on. All of these in the English, it's having done this, having done this. You'll see this in the next few verses. Having done this, having put this on, having worn this, having done this. In the Greek, it's a participle. And if we can go back to English class for just a minute, um, participles don't really show up a lot in English grammar. 
but in Greek grammar, they're actually really, really, really useful and really, really, really hard to parse and all those kind of things. They make homework really difficult, but they're really effective. And a participle is a word that describes a verb. So um, I've been watching a lot of, uh, or keeping up with a lot of Carnival baseball lately. Uh, Grayson's in here. Grayson plays uh, for Carnival baseball. He's a pitcher. He's a hitter. He can do it all. Um, so example of a participle is <clears throat> Grayson Sonye scored a run, scored a home run, hitting the ball, running the bases, and smirking at the other team's dugout because he's awesome, right? So that's the sentence. The verb in that sentence is what? He scored a run. But these ing words that describe how he scored the run would be participles. How did he score? Hitting the ball, running the bases, and smirking at the losers, right? That's how he scored. So when Paul writes to us and he says stand, he's about to tell us how we stand. Here's how we resist. Having fastened, that's our participle. This is describing how we stand. The belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and his shoes for your feet, having put on another participle, the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, and in the Greek, this says having taken up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And then there's another command, take up the helmet of salvation. So we see here, this is how you stand. If you want to leave here this morning knowing how you stand firm in the Lord and you resist the enemy, look at the participles. You put on the uh, belt of truth. You put on the breastplate of righteousness. You put on the shoes of the gospel of peace. And then there's a command, you take up the helmet of salvation. And then he says this, in the evil day. What day is he talking about? He's talking about the day that the Lord has, um, in his complete authority, allowed the enemy to roam. And that's today, that's our day. Ephesians 5, one chapter before this, Paul talks about in verse 15, he says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time, because what? The days are evil. We live in an evil day, and we have to be able to stand, stand firm, know what's true, know where our righteousness comes from, know that we have a secure salvation in Jesus Christ alone, know what truth is, know that we're at peace with God through the gospel, all of these different things. So now we're going to talk about the breastplate. And if you are familiar, I had to look this up too, I don't expect you to be familiar with uh, first century Roman armor, um, but... The breastplate, <clears throat> and let me say this, um, each sermon you're going to hear this and it's, it gets a little weird because we always want to like outdo the armor we did before and explain why this one is more important and all those kind of things. Um, I don't think that's what Paul's goal was. I'm not going to try to tell you which piece of the armor is more important than the other pieces. I think they're all essential. And in fact, I mean, Paul could have been explaining these in the order that you put them on. Who knows? Maybe he puts his breastplate on before he puts his shoes on. I have no idea. But I don't think that's the goal. I think Paul is telling us that they're all essential. Every single one of these has a role in our lives, and they are all crucial. But the breastplate for a Roman soldier was used to protect its vital organs, right? You can go into battle and take an arrow to the arm or take an arrow to the, the calf, but if you were to take one to the heart, it wouldn't, you wouldn't last very long. If you take one to the kidneys or to the liver or whatever, you're not going to make it very long. And this is what the breastplate was for. It was a form of protection. 
And that's what it was. And what Paul is communicating here is that this righteousness that we have in Christ protects us. Now, the dilemma here is what righteousness is he talking about? When he says, put on righteousness, is he talking about the righteousness that we have imputed to us by faith in Jesus? Or is he talking about our own righteousness, our own works? Which one is he talking about? And there are really smart people, a lot smarter than me, that are still debating this and on different camps in this. Um, but the people that I trust, the people that the research that I've done, I think it's a both and. And I'll explain why. One, um, the only righteousness that matters is the righteousness from Jesus Christ. The only true righteousness that will stand when eternity comes is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's the only perfect righteousness in all of life. It's the only righteousness that could ever completely protect us. But why I say both and is because um, God puts that on us. When you put your faith in Jesus, as we will see in just a few minutes, you are given that righteousness. It is put on you. And you don't have to keep putting that on. You can't lose it. It's put on you once. So why would Paul keep telling us repeatedly to put on righteousness? I think it's a both and. I think we put it on initially. He puts it on us when we put our faith in Jesus. And then because we already have his righteousness, as we'll see today, we go and we live a righteous life to honor and please the one who has given us righteousness freely. So we'll see, and I'll hopefully unpack this as we go, um, a little bit through Romans, that this is a both and. So how do we receive this righteousness? Why do we need it? And how do we receive it? Flip over to Romans with me if you have a Bible with you. And I would love for you to see this for yourself. If you've got your phone, um, you can Google Romans or pull up the Bible app. And uh, we are not going to cover Romans in depth. Uh, we're going to do a little flyover of the first uh, few little pieces here. But I want you to see this. All right? Because we love Romans 1.16. Don't we? For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Greek. But we don't quote verse 17, and it's really important because verse 17 says this, for in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. How do we see the righteousness of God? How do we receive it? How do we know what it is? It's in the gospel. That's where we find it. And it starts with the attributes and the character of God, as we talked about in this message already at the beginning, that our God is perfectly righteous. He's perfectly holy. He is the standard of good and, and right. He is the standard of perfection. He's the standard of holiness. He's the standard of love, that everything he does is completely loving, completely righteous, completely holy, completely pure. He's the standard. And God cannot dwell with unrighteousness. Not even a fraction of unrighteousness. And we see this in the garden where Adam and Eve are made in the image of God. They're perfectly righteous and they choose to sin. So what happens? They're separated. They're expelled from the garden. Just like you and I. When you and I, we are sinful beings. We sin. And what happens? We are separated from our God. Isaiah 59 verse 2. Your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. 
that we cannot dwell with a perfectly righteous God. We can't. And Paul starts unpacking this in Romans. And he talks about this idea that nobody is without excuse. That before he even addresses the Old Testament law, before he addresses all the the other things, Paul talks about how because of creation itself, because God created the world, but because he created everything in it, he's displayed his divine attributes, his power, um, his majesty, his beauty, his wonder, and none of us are without excuse. But instead, because we're sinful beings, we've suppressed the truth of God and we've turned to other things. None of us are without excuse. Not a single one of us. And Paul moves on, and this is a brief flyover. But in Romans 2, Paul says that God would be 100% just in giving all of us what we deserve. That our actions, our sin, has earned us separation from God. It's earned us eternal death. And he's saying that God is completely righteous. And he would be just as righteous to give all of humanity exactly what we deserve. God would not lose any of his righteousness by condemning all of us because that's what we have earned with our actions and with our thoughts and with our decisions. And God would be still 100% just, the standard of righteousness, if he would give us what we deserve. He would be just in sending his wrath. It rightly falls on all of us because we are evil. And then he goes on to the Gentiles. And I love how Paul, Paul's writing this letter to the Romans. And he's writing to Jews and to Gentiles because they weren't getting along. The Jews were trying to make the Gentiles become Jews before they could become Christians. They were trying to figure out all this new stuff, these new beliefs, all these kind of things. And he's writing to both of them. And he's talking about the Gentiles. And they don't have the law. And you can read about this in Romans 2. They don't have the law. If you're looking at Romans, look at chapter 2, verse 14 through 16. It says this, for when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they don't have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. And I know that's a lot of big words. What Paul is saying here is that you and I, Gentiles, unless you're Jewish in here, um, I'm not talking to you, you and I who are Gentiles, that we did not grow up in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant. We did not grow up being accountable to the Old Testament law, just like the Gentiles in Paul's day. But he says this, because they by nature, that God by nature has put morality on his creation, that if you want to know the standard of morality, you look at the law, but us Gentiles who don't have it, we kind of instinctively know what's right and what's wrong. Why do we do that? Because God has made us in his image and he has put the law on our hearts, even though we're not accountable to it. And we know instinctively what we should do. We know what's good. We know what's right. And we can't even obey our own conscience, right? Our conscience knows what we should be doing, what's good, what's not good, what's evil. And we still fail to obey it. It condemns us. And it shows us that the law of God is written on our hearts. And what's interesting is in 2010, Uh, and I need to move, Uh, Yale did a study, and it was really interesting. You can go and watch it online, but they were trying to study if infant babies know morality. Can we see glimpses of morality in infants? And they would take these four-month-old babies, five-month-old babies, and, I mean, like, still trying to discover what their own foot is and those kind of things, and they would put them in front of a play. 
And what they would do is um, they didn't dress up the characters to make them evil or good looking. Um, they literally had like a square with some eyeballs on it and a triangle with some eyeballs on it and a hill. And the triangle was trying to walk up the hill and the square would push them down. And then they would close the curtain and then they would open it and they would do the same thing again. No sound effects, no music, just someone trying to make it up a hill and someone pushing them down. And then they would get, they would do that 10 times. And then they would get this circle. So the triangle's trying to make it up the hill and the circle comes up from behind them and helps them get up the hill. And they would do this 10 times. And then they would go to the infant and they would present the two characters to the infant and almost 90% of the time, the infant, not knowing any language, not knowing anything, four months old, would choose the good character. And then they would get these rabbits and they would put different color shirts on them. And one of the rabbits would drop a ball and the other rabbit would come, the blue rabbit would come and grab the ball and run away. And they would do that 10 times. And then scene opens again, rabbit drops the ball, they would get the yellow rabbit to come out and he would grab the ball and he would give it back 10 times in a row. And they bring these two rabbits to the infants and the infants just instantly run up and hug the good rabbit. Showing us that instinctively the law of God is written on our hearts. It's there. And we may not be able to articulate it, especially if you are an unbeliever, if your eyes are still veiled, all those kind of things. Um, but we are still condemned, even though us Gentiles did not grow up under the old covenant, under the law. We are just as guilty. And then he goes and talks to the Jews who are under the law. And he says, you have the law. We're moving into Romans 3. You have the law. You taught the law and you broke it. Um, they didn't even have God's law, and they were guilty. You have it clearly written out, and you couldn't keep it. You couldn't even do it. And Paul says, because their inability to keep the law, it is no wrongdoing on God's part. There was nothing wrong with the law. There was everything wrong with us. And in fact, he goes on to write that the law just exposed how evil they were. That even before Exodus, when they had the law, that there was evil, there was killings, Cain and Abel killing each other. There was no um, Ten Commandments. There was no 600 and something laws. But they were still evil. And then when God gave them the law, it only multiplied just how evil they thought they were. Because now they had a measuring stick. And over and over again, they got to see that they couldn't keep it. And it only multiplied the transgression. And in Romans 3... Paul finally, after he said, because of creation, we don't have an excuse. Gentiles, you don't have an excuse. Jews, you don't have an excuse. We get to Romans 3, and he just says, no one's righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good. <clears throat> not even one. In verse 20, Romans 3, 20, he says, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Through trying to obey the law, we learn just how sinful we are. You want to know how wicked you are? Try to be good for the rest of the day. Think about it all day. Just go home and try to be really, really, really good. And you'll be reminded just how much you can't. It will only bring you into a greater knowledge of your need for someone to do for you what you could not do for yourself. Someone else to meet the standard that you could not meet. And that person is Jesus. And these verses will be on the screen. This is Romans 3, 21 through 26. It says this, but now the righteousness of God 
<clears throat> has been manifested, it's been created, it's been brought into being, God's righteousness apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets, they bear witness to this. They were pointing to this righteousness. The Jews just couldn't see it, but it was pointing to this, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Paul is saying that for all of time, how was God able to look over, look past the sins of the Old Testament? How was he able to do that? Because God, being outside of time and his divine forbearance, knew that this Messiah, this just and justifier, this Jesus would come and he would not only pay for our sins, he would pay for their sins, he would pay for the sins of the world. So yes, there were consequences to their sin. But God did not strike them down and kill them in the Old Testament when they sinned. Why? Because he is his divine forbearance. He knew that this Messiah would come. And if they had faith in him, and they proved their faith by making these other sacrifices, the Day of Atonement, once a year, all these, the sacrificial system, it was there for a reason. God installed it. Why? To show that they had faith. And in Romans 4, talks about, Paul talks about how none of us can boast. It's a gift. It's faith. It's a gift of God. And he appeals to the Jews. He, he talks about Abraham. And he says, how did Abraham become righteous? Before Abraham um, took Isaac up to the mountain, before Abraham did anything, Abraham believed God. And it was accounted to him as righteousness. And there's so much goodness in Romans 5, but here's where I want to get to. In Romans 6, Paul starts asking questions that all of us would start asking. He asks them and he answers them. So he says, hey, if this comes by faith and not by the law, if we're now under grace and not the burden of the law, does that mean we can just keep on sinning? And he says, no. Meganoita, it's like the strongest way you can say no in the Greek language. It's no with, you know, a four-letter word beside it. It's death. Why would you turn back to something that brought you death? Why would you turn back to something that enslaved you? No, you've died to that stuff. Now go live for Christ. Don't go back to the things that brought you bondage and brought you death. Turn from those things. You don't just abuse God's grace and keep on sinning. It's running back to death. We don't do that. And then he asked another question. Well, what do we do about the law if we're not bound to it? Do we throw it out? And he says, no, you've died to the law and you're under grace, but once again, the law was not the problem. We were the problem. In fact, the law shows us God's holiness. It shows us God's character. It shows us God's standard. So what do we do now? And here's where we're going to end this morning as believers. Here's where we end. Here's where our own righteousness comes in. There is a freedom of the believer that we are no longer bound and burdened by the law. We are under grace. We put our faith in what Jesus has done for us, and his righteousness is given to us freely. And we are no longer bound by the law. So now we get to delight in the law. It's no longer a means to condemn us or to punish us. We cannot be condemned. Romans 8.1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
And then now if you're a believer, you no longer have the burden of the law hanging over you. And now we get to delight in it. Because the law is good. There's nothing wrong with the law. It was everything wrong with us. And God's word, his law shows us his kindness. It shows us his character. It shows us his goodness. Paul says in Romans 7, I delight in the law of God. Psalm 1, 1 and 2. Some of you may have memorized this as a kid. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and he meditates on it day and night. Psalms 119, 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. How in the world can we proclaim to the world that we are made righteous in Christ when we can't live rightly amongst them? When we can't be kind to them? How can we show the world that we're at peace with God when we're not at peace with them? How can, in the world can we proclaim to the world this, this message of God's grace for all when we're not gracious with our neighbor? Philippians talks about this, that we would live a life worthy of the gospel in balance with this gospel message that we've received. Now we are no longer afraid of the law. We're no longer bound by the law. We are set free by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ, and now we get to delight in his word. We get to enjoy reading it and having intimacy with him through it and meeting him here and obeying it because it's no longer a way to condemn us. Now it's a way to set us free. Now it's as we pursue this and we obey God and we live rightly, that we would have more peace and more joy and more contentment in our lives because we are obeying his standard. We're following the guide that is the law that shows us God's character and his goodness and his kindness. And as we close, uh, let me just read this last uh, section of scripture in Psalms 19. And it says this, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. And if you're in here this morning and you have never allowed the God of the universe to clothe you with his righteousness, there's good news for you this morning. That all you have to do is believe on Jesus Christ, that he was perfectly righteous, that he lived the life that you and I could never live, and he died the death that we deserve for our sin, and that he rose from the dead. And it is a free gift of God's grace. You cannot work for it. All you do is believe in it. You put your trust in it. And it's not like this intellectually agreed kind of belief. It's a transferal of trust. It's I'm no longer trusting in my own righteousness to try to win something from God, but I am putting my trust in Jesus' righteousness. This is what Paul is explaining to us. And if you've never done that, I want to give you a chance to do that this morning. But if you're a believer in here, I think the application for us is for us to search our hearts, to search the law of God, to search his word, and to see, are there any sins in our lives that we've just become content with? Any sins in our lives that we're flirting with or that we're entertaining, that we're keeping away from others and keeping secret? Are there some things that we just become complacent with? And would we obey the law? Would we live 
righteously. Why? Not to earn God's favor or love, but because we've already been given the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Because he's given that to us, we go and we want to follow his example. We want to live rightly, not to earn it, but because we already have it. So, if you want to receive the righteousness of God for your sin this morning, let me give you an opportunity to do that, and then I'll pray. Um, If that's you, if everybody will just bow their head and close their eyes, uh, we're not going to make you stand up. We're not going to make you come down front. Um, but I, my goal is not to manipulate you. If you prayed that prayer and you're like, hey, Parker, I know you were talking to a room full of people, but uh, I know you were talking to me this morning. And you know that you are not right with God, that you are sinful, that you are imperfect, you are broken, and there's nothing you could ever do to be good enough for him to love you. You're in good company because <laughs> there's nothing any of us could ever do to earn the love and grace of God. It is nothing good in us. It is everything good in him. And if you want to receive the free gift of his righteousness, all you have to do, Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And you can confess You can get as specific as you want. God, I know I'm imperfect. God, I know I'll never measure up, but God, I'm grateful and I'm thankful that you sent Jesus and he measured up. He met the standard in my place and he died my death and he rose from the dead, assuring me that if I put my faith in him, I will rise as well. You can ask him to forgive you of your sin thank him for his forgiveness, thank him for his grace. If you prayed that prayer this morning, our church would want nothing more um, than to communicate with you, to disciple you, to walk alongside of you. We would be thrilled to do that. Lord, as we worship, um, not singing that song, but God, I keep thinking of the song. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. God, that's where our hope is. We do not hope in any of our own abilities, any of our own efforts. God, it is scandalous that you would give us your perfect righteousness, and all we have to do is give you our sin and trust in you. God, you are so good. We are so undeserving. end of that song, when he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found dressed in his righteousness alone. God, we long for that day. We cannot wait for that day when we will all, your sons and daughters, stand before you in your righteousness. What an incredible, glorious day that will be. Until then, help us to stand knowing we already have it. Help us to withstand the schemes of the enemy knowing that we already have your righteousness. And when we fall, know that we're not condemned, that we would get up and continue to run after you and live rightly and holy. God, because we didn't lose your righteousness, we're sealed, we're in your hands. So God, help us to live free, to run after you, to delight in your word, knowing that we have your righteousness. And it is only by your grace that we pray and that we sing in Jesus' name, amen.
Why are you stopping? That's it? What a great morning, amen? Awesome. And we are so thankful that you've joined us uh, this morning. My name is Lance, and I serve as one of the pastors here. And if you took a step of trusting Jesus as your Lord and Savior, we would love to know that. And the seat back in front of you, or maybe the, the seat behind you, uh, is a um, respond to the gospel card. This gives us an opportunity to hear from you if you have a prayer request or if you took a step in trusting Christ. If you desire to go public, as we saw this morning, wasn't that awesome? Let's give it up for the Matthew, boy, or Matthew Mason, and Maddox for, uh, thank you for setting the example. And if you desire to go public with your faith as they did, we would love to know that. And we would love to walk alongside of you and give you that opportunity as well. Um, a few things before you head out. Uh, this evening, we have the picnic at the park at Hinton Park off of Holmes Road. Uh, if behind me, what we're asking for you to bring is uh, food and drinks for you and your family, uh, lawn chair, blankets. Uh, if you have anything you wanna bring to share with others to play games, we're just gonna take over the park and have a great time out there um, uh, in fellowship and community as uh, a church. And so that's from five to eight. Uh, we're probably, uh, be done before 8 o'clock because I heard that they shut the gate at 8 o'clock so that's going to be kind of weird because stuck there hitting park anyway but it's from 5 to 8 and we would love to see you out there with us uh, one other thing we have Grove Track hosted this uh, this evening as well it's virtual it's online uh, it's your way of finding out how to take a next step here at High Point uh, Church if you go to highpointonline.com forward slash serve you can find out about that uh, if you desire to be a member of High Point Church, that would be the first step for you or find out how to serve or get connected. Uh, and lastly, uh, this Saturday, May 1st, we're gonna be uh, celebrating the life of our dear friend, Trisha Leggett, that passed away uh, recently. And it will be Saturday, May 1st. One o'clock will be family visitation and two o'clock is when we'll celebrate her life there at our East Memphis campus. So we wanna invite you, if you know Trisha or love that family, we wanna invite you to, to be with us there at the East Memphis campus next Saturday uh, afternoon. Again, thank you for being here this morning. We'll continue with the series. Pastor Parker will continue with the Gospel of Peace next Sunday. Uh, so have a great weekend and hopefully we'll see you at the park this evening. Uh, we'll see you next Sunday. Thank you.